Is Nordic animism indigenous? In this video, I'll explain how majority Euro-traditional knowledge relates to indigeneity and indigenous knowledge. I made strong recommendations recently of uh, Tyson Junkerporter's Aboriginal Australian indigenous knowledge thinking, and there's been some demand for clarifications about how Nordic animism relates to indigeneity. Here's my thinking. Uh, I sense there's a hype around being indigenous, and this hype comes from a good place. A bit like I, I yarned about with Tyson recently, there's a yearning for a truer way of being human. Uh, fundamentally, this um, yearning is about lost connectedness. So even though it does get pathological and weird sometimes, it, its roots should not be dismissed completely. However, I'm also suspicious of this hype. I suspect that people belonging to the groups normally I identified as indigenous, you know, I'm assuming they would think like, oh, so now that's all the rage. Well, if it's so great, you should try it. it you know, actually also has some downsides. Um, the UN definition of indigeneity is uh, good to think with. It includes firstness in an area, traditional life forms, and being marginalized by a dominant, possibly colonizer, state. That last bit is important. Um, it, and, but it doesn't seem all that uh, central, I think, to how most people um, talk about indigeneity. I think people focus mostly about uh, just being first, but it's actually important. This is what makes the difference between a Sami person in northern Sweden and a Swedish person in southern Sweden. If we talk about who's first nations of these two, then it actually makes doesn't make that much sense to distinguish, really. And technically, the Sami might perhaps have been in northern Sweden for somewhat longer, but the Swedes were in southern Sweden for millennia, oceans of time. You need like DNA testing and Yamnaya migrations and archaeology and beaker culture. And then all you get is like theories about when they got there. It's that long ago, you know. And this means that except if we're talking about you know, the more recent colonization of northern Sweden, um, the Sami areas, then distinction between firstness actually doesn't make that much sense, you know. But one of these two peoples has a state, their language is spoken throughout society, and the other has been marginalized. And this is an important distinction, and it's why some people really need the indigenous label. They need it to legitimize their struggle for land rights and cultural rights, for instance. Think about something like kids' schooling language. You know, if you're a majority population, you can just take absolutely for granted that, uh, that uh, you can send your, your, your children to school and they'll be taught in your own language. Um, and this is the reason that I think that, that uh, majority populations should not apply the term indigenous on themselves. It risks undermining these groups by muddling up things for their struggle to basically attain equal rights. If majority people in, for instance, expansive colonial states such as Sweden or Denmark, I'm Danish, start claiming indigeneity all over the place. It doesn't actually 
make that big of a difference that I might totally be first nation in, in, in the country where I live. You know, I can walk out on the fields in, on the farm where I, I grew up and I find uh, shards of pottery that were made at the time when Emperor Augustus ruled in Rome. That farm was already there and the people living in it spoke a direct ancestor language to the one that I'm speaking to my children. They probably even named themselves with ethnonyms related to mine. So it was a, even uh, in terms of ethnic identity, they, they, there's some sort of connection probably. To my knowledge, I'm 100% ethnically unambiguous. So right, in terms of indigeneity, on the one hand, what exactly do I have to prove? <laughs> but on the other hand, that narrative that I just made here, what exactly does it give us in terms of land connectedness? You know, I'm suspicious actually about this kind of parading cultural continuity uh, among your descendants because I think it occludes the real ruptures, the real fragmentations, and they're in our perception and, and relating, and therefore they are, they are rooted in cultural developments. And therefore, the fact that about all my ancestries pretty much stayed in the same region, it doesn't really say anything except, yeah, mate, your reality is about as colonized by modernity as anybody else in that region who are like plowing over grave sites and filling sacred wells with concrete and shit, you know. Also, uh, the terms, term indigenous, I sense that it would uphold some problems around uh, diaspora Euro descendants like Americans, and Australians and so on. If I, for instance, went around claiming to be indigenous, then all my American friends who descend from the same people and come from the same or closely related culture, I guess they would then be less indigenous than me, right? This would create this sort of hierarchy of identitarian authenticity. And I think that's based on some weird, non-real shit, which is profoundly problematic. And it just begs to be used for idiotic, narcissistic purposes. In fact, it is used for that kind of purposes sometimes today. I doubt that I'm significant, significantly less ruptured from traditional culture than an average North American. In fact, I don't even think that being ethnically unambiguous is particularly indigenous. We tend to think it might be because Eurocentric nationalist ideals of monoculture have been projected on pre-colonized cultures who in fact had vast and overlooked interfaces with each other, right? So being hybrid is not, I think, in any real opposition to indigeneity. Perhaps being non-hybrid like me is more in opposition. I don't know. You know. However, if we forget about the label for a moment and look at the content of indigenous knowledge, then that is, in my view, relevant pretty much for everybody. It's a bit like, you know, a queer perspective is in fact relevant, indeed enriching, for people with any sexuality, also normative sexualities. These knowledge forms should not be sort of encased and secluded with these groups. Like today there, there are indigenous people who actively go out and make this knowledge available. In Tyson's case, you know, he's explicitly thinking indigeneity as an embassy, a kind of outreach. But if people immediately start rattling their cultural appropriation sabers as soon as you look in that direction, then that in fact exotifies and distances this kind of knowledge. And I mean, I, I, don't, 
I don't can't imagine that that anybody would think that this is healthy. Or I assume even you know, from the indigenous perspective, it would probably not even be desirable. It would uphold. In fact, it would uphold the indigenous voice outside of of uh, outside of influence because people are not able to l- listen to it and learn from it, right? And it would maintain the seclusion of Euro descendant descendants inside this modernist worldview that's producing the problem. This kind of no-touch practice, uh, which also, by the way, is rooted in nationalisms, of course, uh, they, it has the problem that it keeps white people fucked up, basically. And the yearning of white people out of the fuck-up is important because that this is the kind of knowledge that is sometimes classified as indigenous knowledge can actually be meaningfully applied in our work to recover land connectedness, animist culture, and traditional culture. And let me also just say that I would find it deeply uh, ethically problematic if anyone were to deny that any human being does have the right to think themselves in those terms, you know, land connectedness, animist culture, and traditional culture. Indigeneity, yes. For political reasons, my present position is that we must reserve this important label to groups who experience marginalization and colonization. But saying that a settler child born in a colonized continent should not be cultured into animist land connectedness, that's just so wrong, mainly because it reproduces settler culture in this abusive detachment from land and decent, respectful engagement with others in the land. It's a bit like saying, not just the white people bad, but they're supposed to be bad. And if they try to change, then we will police it so they stay bad. right? And I think basically any child ought to be able to realize that that kind of thinking is a bad idea, really. So what does this uh, imply? I think it means that we can legitimately and respectfully learn from indigenous knowledge when indigenous thinkers are making it available. Right? Mainly we can learn the principles underlying uh, practice that engages the world based on respect and kindness in the encounter with a larger com- community of beings. Right? Those principles also underlie our own traditional knowledge forums. And that is my preferred label, label actually. Traditional. Uh, Saying traditional is very closely related to saying indigenous. From some perspective, it's almost identical kinds of knowledge. Come on, I mean, a spirit in a stone in Iceland and a spirit in a stone among the Canadian Ojibwe are really not that different. A corn deity among Germans and among the Maya, they aren't that different. Though, of course, our old friends, you know, Eurocentrism, nationalism and racism have totally claimed that they are different and they're not allowed to even touch each other, these ways of thinking. Uh, there are, and I'm not making this up, there are folklore scholars today who will deny that Euro folklore has anything to do with animism at all. And when I get this, I get this I'm almost like, I don't know what to say, you know. <laughs> you know, the animist scholars who read social media algorithms and city planning principles as expressions of animism, but spirits and trees are like not animism. <laughs> so, no, you know, indigenous knowledge and traditional knowledge is basically identical ways of animist being in the world. The label is just important because it has political implications. 
indigenous implies marginalization, colonization, disenfranchisement. Right. Hence, when we're talking about majority populations, I use traditional and not indigenous. Traditional probably has its own problem, but uh, problems, but I've really come to like like it, right? For for some different reasons. For instance, claiming that a person does not have the right to her own traditional culture is evidently flawed, bigoted, and idiotic. You do have traditional culture. Also, as a Turtle Island, you're a descendant settler who might feel very ruptured from this tradition. And as mentioned, I actually don't think that you are significantly more ruptured from uh, real tradition than those of us who have Viking names and red beards and 100% ethnic unambiguity and all that shit. You know, uh, yeah. There's also an, there's also a totally awesome thing about traditional, and that is that it means almost the opposite of what people think it means. You know, it and this skewed meaning is pregnant with, I think, potential for cultural renewal. People think tradition means static, but it really means transformational. They think it means encased conservatism, but it really means relationally dynamic. They think it means reactionary, but it might just totally as well mean progressive. <clears throat> some say that, that uh, traditionalism implies fascism because some specific fascists were critical of modernity. And I think it's a silly old wives tale. You know, it's beyond me that people with educations can reiterate that stuff just because Umberto Eco said it. You know, Inuit queer activists are not fascist just because they identify as traditionalist and are critical of modernity, right? And on the other hand, modernists such as Pol Pot, Stalin, and King Leopold can indeed be gigantic murderous fascists, and they are certainly modernist, right? So, so yeah, this, I, I think this discrepancy in between, between what people tend to imagine of as being traditional and what traditional really means is also charged with this intersectional struggle to recover Euro-descended self-images and cultural knowledge away from cruel and pathological structures such as whiteness and colonialism. When we take back traditionalism from bigoted worldviews, I think we're doing an urgently necessary self-image cleanup operation that opens ethically sound access to our roots culture. So working with traditional as a perspective is, I think, emancipating for your descendants without reproducing marginalization of native groups by, for instance, leeching on them. You know, uh, in fact, I think it implies solidarity with them. Cool. So summing up, <clears throat> indigenous knowledge is an important inspiration when we are recovering Euro-traditional animisms, such as Nordic animism. However, my present position is that I'm suspicious of this indigenous label when Europeans uh, self-apply it. I believe it has. To, we have to reserve it for the empowerment struggles of marginalized, colonized groups. Yet, the knowledge processes uh, as it is suggested by contemporary indigenous knowledge scholarship, for instance, Tyson Junker-Porter and others, 
That kind of thinking can certainly be used in developing majority traditional knowledge, land connectedness and animism. And it is urgently important that this work is undertaken and it should be undertaken with all the power and passion and intelligence that we have at our disposal. It is probably the most important uh, project of cultural scholarship being undertaken in the world today. Probably. And uh, yeah, all the power to all the relations. See you around. Oh, 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 oh,